Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Bitcoin wakes up from its lull and roars back to life. But is the worst of crypto news flow behind us? We'll discuss this and more with Andrew Keys from Dharma Capital. Welcome back to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. Let's jump straight in to the latest price action. And boy, what a few days we've had. Crypto markets have returned to above $1 trillion in market cap on CoinGecko, and Bitcoin has played a major role in that transition. The largest cryptocurrency has had a remarkable rally. Let's take a closer look at it now. Uh, when we were last on air on Friday, Bitcoin had surged to $19,000, but that was not the end of it. After a short period of historically low volatility, Bitcoin hit a high as high as $21,400. It's now trading at just over $21,000. That means Bitcoin is up 22% on a trailing seven-day basis. It is one of the best-performing top 20 cryptocurrencies. Coindesk reports that expectations for Bitcoin price over the next six months have turned positive for the first time in two years. According to data from Amber Data cited by Coindesk, Bitcoin's 180-day call put skew has crossed above zero for the first time since 2021. That means bullish call options, so bets on prices to rise expiring in six months have become pricier than bearish put options on bet prices falling. Uh, according to Glassnode, Bitcoin miners and the average hodler are back in black. Glassnode calculates $19,700 as the average price people have paid for Bitcoin. That means the recent rally has taken people into profit if they were to sell now. Meanwhile, Ethereum has also enjoyed a big bump. ETH is trading well above $1,500. It's up 18% on a trailing seven-day basis. In other price news, BNB, the native token of Binance, is up 2% on a trailing 24-hour basis. BNB chain, which was launched by Binance, says it's completed the burn of more than 500 million worth of BNB tokens. This refers to the process of permanent deletion of coins from the circulating supply to prevent inflation. BNB's plan is to eventually have only 100 million in BNB tokens in circulation. Another token we're looking at right now is MANA, M-A-N-A. The native token of Decentraland is the biggest gainer on a trailing seven-day basis. MANA gained more than 80% during that time period. Decentraland... Uh, the Ethereum-based virtual reality platform has introduced new features for its users recently. It appears the changes have been well-received. Okay, with all that said, time to bring in our guest. Andrew Keyes is co-founder and president of Dharma Capital. Welcome back to Real Vision Crypto, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Ash. Always a pleasure. 
Andrew, you're one of my favorite guests. Uh, our last conversation I thought was absolutely fantastic. So much to talk about here. Let's jump right into something that uh, was in the news very much when you were last on the show. Wanted to talk about. Let's talk about DCG. I want to show some tweets that you posted back uh, in November. I'm just going to read them out here because I think it's really interesting and our viewers will find it really interesting. Uh, this is coming from you tweeting uh, to Barry Silbert, DCG Co., that's D Digital Currency Group, and Genesis Trading. You know where to find me. Interested in Ethereum assets, all of them. I'm interested in acquiring all of Genesis Trading and DCG uh, companies' Ethereum assets. Reach out to me at Andrew at dharma.capital andrew great story great tweets uh tell us have you heard back from them where are we on that i have heard back from them we we've gone back and forth uh i don't think at this point they're ready to uh part ways with their their assets uh and and, and frankly that's all i can say at this point but uh i i i was interested in acquiring the assets and and that was everything from potentially the Grayscale Ethereum Trust to assets on the balance sheet that may have been locked up, such as staked Ether, uh, that will be uh, able to be withdrawn uh, at the next Ethereum upgrade, Shanghai. So Andrew, I know I'm mindful here uh, that we have some probably some non-competes in place that prevent you from talking about it too much, but just the back of the envelope numbers, the most obvious one here I'm looking at, Grayscale Ethereum Trust, E-T-H-E, uh, publicly traded. Uh, on NASDAQ under that symbol, they've got $4.3 billion in Ethereum. Uh, pretty big number there, pretty big uh, purchase you're talking about. Yeah, it would it would have been a syndicate. So uh, I would have been the primary investor of, of a few, and we would have syndicated the purchase uh, on behalf of a group. Uh, but nonetheless, we, we were interested in acquiring the assets. Yeah. Um, Obviously, a pretty big number there. I want to talk a little bit uh, more generally about some ideas that uh, I think of you as being best known for. The ideas about true decentralization, what that means, what it looks like. Uh, I know that you thought FTX was problematic because of the collaborating, essentially a prop shop with an exchange, uh, taking directional bets. You were very public about this early uh, before FTX imploded. You also made an interesting point on our show the last time you were on uh, that the only creditors who were made whole uh, in a series of failures were essentially the holders of the smart contracts that were in, in essence programmatically executed, uh, secured by the rules of math and physics. Talk a little bit generally about how you think about the promise of smart contracts, of true decentralization, and how it relates more broadly to your ideas about Ethereum. Sure. We are in a turning point, I would say, a, a, a point of change. And, and what we've witnessed in 2022 was the worst of all worlds. Uh, centralized, opaque, unregulated intermediaries uh, that were facilitating trade and borrowing rather than decentralized, smart contract-based uh, software uh, that would not uh, intermediate unnecessarily and opaquely and would be transparent. Moreover, we could also programmatically add uh, regulation into the smart contracts. So uh, a participant couldn't, uh, couldn't enter an exchange, for example, unless they complied with anti-money laundering, know, know your customer, or was uh, deemed an accredited investor. And, and basically, uh, the resolution to 2022's problems is the actual technology. And my fear 
is we're conflating uh, the centralized, unregulated, opaque institutions with the actual decentralized smart contract based technology where we can bake in transparency and regulatory compliance. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. You said something there that I not only agree with, but I've been saying on the show now for months is that we wound up with the worst of all possible worlds. You had true centralization, centralization uh, under FTX and some of the other models out there uh, while not having uh, essentially any regulation uh, that would be sort of effective at understanding things and managing things like capital requirements, uh, segregation of assets, all of these things that people take for granted in traditional capital markets, as flawed as those capital markets may be. Uh, clearly, obviously, this this what this sort of Frankenstein's monster that we wound up with here uh, in the crypto space, clearly a challenge. Talk a little bit about this idea of true decentralization and its inputs for the truly regulated environment or finding mechanisms at least to build in some type of transparency so that you can see what's being complied with and what's not. So I think the best example is are the creditors that have been paid back and and and, and you touched upon it, but but I'll dig into that a little bit more in, in just kind of where we are now. Uh, when Prior to any of these bankruptcies, uh, a common thread or common fact pattern that we've seen is that the debtor, FTX, Celsius are two primary examples, uh, needed to shore up dollars. They needed US dollars and rather than Bitcoin, Ether or any other crypto asset on their balance sheet uh, because they knew that the court system would understand US dollars versus the volatility and the just to kind of the, the new nature of the crypto assets. So what, what we'd seen was, is that in both FTX's case and in Celsius's case, they used decentralized smart contract based lending protocols where they would post for round numbers, let's call it a million dollars of ether. And, and then what they would do was they would borrow US dollar coins. So digital versions of the US dollars against that. Uh, and 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 basically, they would be able to borrow at about a 30% loan-to-value ratio. So in the million-dollar example, for every million dollars, they'd be able to borrow $300,000. And unfortunately, no one has been paid back. No, no, not a single creditor has been paid back that's a human. And we've seen the last, last month's Kirkland & Ellis bill for Celsius, as an example, was $6.5 million dollars. And the only entity that has been paid back is actually a robot. It's a decentralized smart contract. And, and, and what happened was in order to free up the collateral they were posted, um, they would pay back in, in Celsius example, for every million dollars of collateral they posted, they borrowed $300,000. That $300,000 per million was the only thing that has been paid back in the bankruptcy. And, and interestingly enough, the exact same thing happened in FTX's uh, case. And so, so, so what, what we'll show there is, is the fact that there is no negotiation with these smart contracts. There's no arbiter, there's no trustee, there's no, no uh, bankruptcy attorney, uh, and it's just the code. And we can use that same type of decentralized smart contract-based software uh, that does not negotiate uh, to offer regulatory compliance. Mm. We can bake into the system 
that uh, a person is not able to enter a trading venue unless they are, have been approved for anti-money laundering, know your clients. We can bake into the system that uh, certain margin uh, and collateral requirements that are transparent. So you could basically tell that if someone do does get margin called, like Alameda, uh, they're blown out uh, and, 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 and they're forced to sell the collateral, unlike what happened where we had this opaque backdoor and uh, essentially Alameda was able to run a book uh, that would normally have been margin called uh, and, and basically grow their deficit with other people's money that didn't allow it. So, yeah. so basically we've seen the building blocks uh, and the, actually the solutions to these problems and they lie in the technology that is actually being built. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point that you bring up, the FTX-Alameda relationship. I believe in the interview with the Wall Street Journal, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was asked about that, and I believe what his response was that Alameda had the ability to put on uh, larger positions without being margin call. But that's something that's still uh, very, very much being sorted out, and I'm sure we're going to hear much more about it uh, as these lawsuits and criminal prosecutions continue. But let's talk a little bit about the mechanisms here uh, to give people a sense of how this works. Uh, you talked a little bit about how you, essentially these are secured uh, with the laws of math and physics. Talk a little bit about why these smart contracts can get executed, why they are the creditors, uh, the holders of those smart contracts are in fact the creditors that can be made whole. Explain a little bit about how that process works. Well, essentially what we've done is we've tokenized uh, legal agreements and, and digitized the legal agreements. And rather than kind of Microsoft Word documents, we have if-then-else statements. Uh, and those if then else statements contain digital tokens that represent value. And we can essentially programmatically impose uh, clauses to an ISDA, so an International Swap Dealer Association's uh, derivatives contract, for example. And, and basically what we were able to do, or what we are able to do, is, is programmatically impose these rules. And uh, as long as the smart contract is live and running, uh, there is no way to renegotiate out of that. Yeah, and, and we should talk a little bit about your background here because you are kind of one of the ultimate Ethereum OGs. You're a co-founder of Consensus. You were uh, spending time uh, with Vitalik on uh, Ethereum in its very early days, uh, trying to get people familiar with the idea when uh, you know basically there were no smart contract execution platforms. It was essentially Bitcoin and other proof of work coins. Talk a little bit about how you got involved in this, what your background was, and why you saw this as something that had the opportunity to have real value add in terms of the proposition for the way Ethereum works. Sure. So just one quick clarification. I didn't co-found Consensus. I co-founded Consensus Capital, which was the asset manager and venture arm of Consensus. Um, but to, to, to your question, uh, I was a nerd that studied economics and computer science. Uh, and I, my best computer science was in college and it has been technically downhill, but I understood the architecture enough uh, to meet Joseph Lubin, the, one of the co-founders of the Ethereum project and the founder of Consensus at the first ever Ethereum meetup in Manhattan. And, and, and basically, we went down a rabbit hole of use cases where we could essentially have the ability to digitize legal agreements and to digitize assets uh, and, and embed those digital assets into these legal agreements so you could essentially increase the velocity of value. 
and and the the tokenization of any asset. So we're talking about an electron on a microgrid or an insurance policy or or someone's prescription, which you wouldn't necessarily consider to be an asset in the sense of a security, but it's an asset to themselves and it's unique to the prescriber, the insured, and to their diagnoses. You could basically programmatically have a better way of maintaining state of a database and to essentially move these assets uh, quicker. Uh, and so we basically went down the rabbit hole and, and, and built the tooling, the infrastructure. So we maintained three of the eight implementations of the Ethereum protocol, the Java client, the Haskell client, the .NET client, uh, and then the application layer. And we basically created lots of different proofs of concepts uh, that we scaled into uh, applications. And uh, as a result of that, it created MetaMask, which is the most used wallet um, in the space. I think there's close to 30 million monthly active users. Uh, you, to give you an idea, that's about one-tenth. Uh, so there's still a long ways to go. That's about one-tenth the users of PayPal. But it's still material. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, one of the interesting things you talked about there is this idea of tokenization of uh, prescriptions, for example. And, and I think that metaphor is an interesting one, and I've heard you talk about this in the past as an example of something that would be a token that clearly uh, would seem seem not to be a security, meaning uh, that you know many of the potential applications for this universe that you envision, that you spend a great deal of time thinking about, uh, not something that would look like a traditional security uh, in the views of many people. Yes, I, I think that's a great point. And, and what we've seen is that now that we can digitize all assets, uh, I think that we've had these kind of blanket statements, uh, particularly from Gary Gensler, and I, and I do respect him, and I do respect uh, the SEC's intent uh, for consumer protection. But I do believe that uh, we as an industry would be much better, and I think consumers uh, uh, would be much better off if the SEC were to essentially develop an ontology uh, for tokens. Some tokens are indeed securities. Some, I think, act much more like commodities. Some act like software licenses, and some act like basically consumer goods, uh, you know, or or pieces of art that that aren't necessarily right. uh, investment tools. Hey, talk a little bit about what an ontology or taxonomy might look like. What the difference is, uh, and why you think it's important. I think basically we need to create a framework for any type of, so basically we can tokenize all assets now. And, right. and a, an electron on a microgrid is very different from a non-fungible token that is representing the intellectual property of a molecule uh, that, that could essentially be done for you know phase zero or phase one clinical trials, which is very different from a fiat currency 
US dollar, British pound, Japanese yen, uh, which is very different from a stock or a software license or, or, or a piece of art. And, right. and I think basically we have to figure out a framework for defining which of these assets, uh, which, which, which framework they or where they belong within the framework, and right. then uh, understanding who is governing that. So, you know, if it's an insurance policy, that's a token where it says if the insured paid premium and there's X amount of rain and Y amount of, of, of wind, then the insurance policy pays out. That should be governed by probably the insurance regulatory body versus if we have a token that has dividends and governance and, and, and stock ownership, that should probably be governed by the, C uh, the SEC or, or a commodity or a token that represents a bar of gold, or I think kind of ether is a great example of a next generation digital commodity, kind of a cryptographic fuel that would probably be best under CFTC purview. So, so basically I think we have to uh, kind of understand where these digital tokens are because they are not created equal and they all represent different types of assets. And then we can't just apply retroactive frameworks uh, uh, to these assets. You know, a lot of these securities uh, or all securities frameworks right now um, discuss, you know, aspects of prime brokerage and custody. Uh, and these tokens are bearer assets. So you don't necessarily need, let's call it T plus three settlement because there's an atomic swap where uh, the trade is the settlement when using tokens. Um, so, so there's kind of clarifications and, and, and updates that need to be made to securities frameworks uh, when uh, specifically designing tokens. Andrew, just to translate into layman's terms and to see if I understand you correctly, essentially what you're saying here is uh, the capacity of this token world to tokenize just about everything and anything uh, has just grown exponentially. And one of the challenges that we face here uh, is that the law does not move as quickly as the code. Uh, it doesn't move as quickly as the technology. So when you talk about these ontologies, the idea here is to, to build a kind of a legal or regulatory or legislative framework so that you have these, these kind of clear lines in the sand so that people who are interested uh, in developing these solutions know, hey, if I stay within this box, this is where I'm safe. This is where I have safe harbor to do these things. And if I move from this box into this box, then I'm going to be regulated differently. I'm going to be regulated maybe by a different entity. Uh, different laws are going to apply. But just some framework uh, that people can think about this stuff. So people who want to build, people who want to be good actors, who want to contribute to the space, have a way to do that rather than this kind of uh, legislation by enforcement where you never know quite when you're going to get wrapped on the knuckles. I, I completely agree. And, and, and by and large, people want to comply. Uh, yeah. and, and regulatory clarity is the result of is is the recipe for growth, and 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 I think that uh, everyone in the industry that is or has been a benevolent actor would would encourage thoughtful uh, regulation uh, yeah. and thoughtful debate on the regulatory clarity steps, uh, and 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 this is frankly what we need for the United States to win Web three similar to how the United States won Web 2. And, and at this point, the uh, United States is lagging, frankly. Uh, we picked the wrong battles uh, in, in, in kind of going after the Kim Kardashians of the world when the FTXs of the world was right under our nose, unfortunately.
Yeah, it's such a it's such a good point. Listen, Andrew, we got a lot of crypto news flow that I want to catch our audience up on, but I also want to ask you this question. Uh, we've undergone a bit of a rally here, uh, obviously in Bitcoin, and I know Ethereum, uh, which you watch. When we have a rally like we've seen for the past month, let's say in Ethereum, uh, going back to about Jan third was when we saw this run up uh, from looks like uh, call it around twelve hundred bucks to about fifteen hundred seventy dollars right now, just under sixteen hundred. When we get a little rally like that, is that something you pay any attention to, or are you just kind of more strategic than that? I I I. Absolutely pay attention to it. Uh, I am essentially 10 years long on specific protocols like Ethereum. So uh, it doesn't rattle me 25 direction in, in, in one direction or the other, 25% one direction or the other. Uh, I think specifically this one was it was a simple short squeeze. Uh, I think that being said, uh, the global economy is still broken and and the crypto asset class that you know just is hovers over a trillion dollars now is a fly on the tail of that uh, dog, uh, the global economy. So I, I do proceed with caution uh, going forward, uh, and and I think that you know we are continuing to see improved fundamentals uh, in terms of scalability, privacy, uh, and, and and users and developers onto I would say the crypto ecosystem, uh, but uh, there are bigger fish to fry in, in what we've seen in global macro. Yeah, well said. Uh, so Andrew, I wanted to just catch our audience up on some news flow here. The world's largest crypto exchange is trying to shore up confidence. Binance will allow its institutional investors to keep the collateral for leverage positions off platform. The company says that firms will still have the option to post collateral with Binance custody. It will then hold the assets in so-called cold storage, which means wallets are unconnected to the internet. Binance says Binance Custody is a separate legal entity registered in Lithuania. It was launched in 2021. Obviously, Binance is taking these actions after some significant problems at other centralized crypto entities. Andrews, I know you're a decentralized kind of guy. Thoughts on this? So I, I think this is all a result of the counterparty risk uh, that, that we saw happen in the Celsius uh, FTX world last year. And, and simply put, you know, if I, if I wanted to do a 30-day call option with an, a, a counterparty, uh, I would typically have to post that collateral uh, with them. And I, I would say there, there, there's risk that, that everyone is assuming and recognizing now uh, not only is there the risk of the call option, you know, in, in this case, you know, for example, uh, there's a 25% uh, raise in the in the price over 15 days. So people that are that are basically selling call options probably are going to be called away. But there's also the counterparty risk in, in, I would just say, bankruptcy protection. And so this is a way for Binance to continue to earn option premium uh, with but and while also removing that bankruptcy uh, risk and counterparty risk. So I think it makes sense uh, for them. Okay, one more story, uh, and this is, let's call it an interesting one. Uh, some are hoping 2023 will be a comeback year for crypto, but they probably didn't have this in mind. Several news outlets are reporting a leaked pitch deck that shows founders of 3AC, that's Three Arrows Capital, teaming up with CoinFlex on a new venture. 3AC, uh, the bankrupt crypto hedge fund funded by Suzu or excuse me founded by Suzu and Kyle Davies Coinflex is a bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange run by Mark Lamb and Sudu Arumagan uh, 
According to the pitch, they're looking for funding for GTX. Yes, GTX, the name apparently a pun on FTX, which would be a cryptocurrency exchange that would allow users to trade distressed crypto debt. Uh, creditors of insolvent digital asset firms would be able to buy and sell claims. That includes their own credits, meaning creditors of CoinFlex and 3AC would be able to trade uh, those distressed assets on this new platform. Uh, the, the idea has been met with a backlash from the industry, probably not a surprise there. Uh, the CEO of Wintermute, the largest crypto market maker, has said he will not work with any investors in GTX. CoinFlex has been forced to issue a statement on its blog. It says the idea for claims trading marketplace is, quote, an evolution of CoinFlex's commitment to building open and transparent financial markets. They say CoinFlex could be rebranded into a new entity, but GTX, they say, is only a placeholder name. I guess file this under can't make this up, particularly on the naming uh, convention there. What do you think about this, Andrew? Uh, I, I think in the United States, everyone is innocent to proven guilty, but I, uh, I've, I've noticed that uh, the founders of 3AC are in a non-extraditable country. And uh, as explained in the media, there's been destruction of evidence uh, with respect to kind of the 3AC matter. Uh, and and I'm, I'm amazed that they would come out uh, and, and, and try to raise capital and, and, and build products uh, when frankly, uh, there's there's more to come to light of the 3AC fiduciary responsibility to their uh, limited partners and shareholders. Well, you know, as you said, obviously everyone uh, in the United States is innocent and brutal, proven guilty. Uh, criminal charges have not yet been filed in that case. Uh, there have been assertions made online in media outlets, but those have not yet been adjudicated in a court of law. Uh, all that said, boy, the name alone, GTX, my God. Yeah. Too close to home, too soon, too, too you know, too, too, too much. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit here about Silvergate as well. Shares of Silvergate Capital are trading higher today. Uh, the shares had risen as high as 23% in morning trading. Looks like the stock price now is about 10% uh, higher. Looks like on my screen, actually, close to 8% uh, declining. It's been pretty volatile, actually, uh, today. Uh, this despite big losses in Silvergate's quarterly earnings. Coindesk says the crypto-friendly bank posted a net loss of $1 billion in the final three months of 2022. That compares to a net profit of $40 million in the preceding quarter and $18 million in net profit in the same quarter a year before. The bank saw an outflow of $8.1 billion in capital in Q4 2022 uh, and was forced to lay off 40% of its workforce. So obviously some challenges at Silvergate, uh, but share prices higher this morning after reporting a net loss. Again, they'd been as high as 23% increase on the day. Trading right now on my screen looks like 14.29. Uh, Andrew, any thoughts about Silvergate and this sort of intersection aspect of the, the regulated banking system uh, with the cryptocurrency ecosystem? Yeah, so S Silvergate was kind of the golden boy of, of the banks where they, they had a higher multiple, you know, banks trade two, three times book, and this was trading five, six times book. Uh, that said, it, it flew a little too close to the sun with respect to its relationship with FTX. Uh, and we saw a modern day real bank run. Uh, I think that, it, you know, what you know the, the 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 price action even though there was the 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 loss posted is probably a, a similar result of a short squeeze 
uh, where, where, where there were many that were kind of on the other side of that trade. Um, and, you know, these are kind of matters that get solved in months and years, not days and weeks. And it could have been just kind of weak hands on the on the side of the short. Yeah, I don't know if I'm looking at the right number here, but on my screen, price of book looks like it's uh, it's three tenths, uh, basically zero point three uh, on a price to earnings basis, uh, which I do have on my screen uh, and looks accurate is three point three eight. Um, obviously, and I think uh, that's now. If you look back, let's call it uh, in twenty one, it was trading uh, I think four and a half, five and a half yeah. Uh, PE. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it looks like on the screen as well. Hey everyone, we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Andrew, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about, uh, switching gears here a little bit, is your 2023 predictions. Obviously, a lot about the roadmap for Ethereum, uh, Shanghai, the ability to access staked assets. Tell us a little bit, before we get into some of your other predictions for 2023, where you think the Ethereum ecosystem is today, where it's going, what you're most uh, optimistic about, and also some potential risks that you may see in the Ethereum ecosystem, because you're closer to it than most. Sure. Sure. I, I would just say, simply put, Ethereum is the largest ecosystem in the blockchain space uh, by every metric except for market cap, uh, where Bitcoin is in that hegemonic position uh, and Ethereum is number two uh, in terms of developers, transactions, value locked on the ecosystem, uh, applications being built, GitHub repositories, uh, other blockchains that anchor to it or connect through it uh, via bridges or layer two scaling solutions. Uh, uh, it is my firm belief that uh, Ethereum is the kind of substrate of the digital global economy. And, and essentially everything is either connecting to it or anchoring to it, uh, you know, via sidechain or via layer two. Uh, and uh, I think last year, the, the news of last year was actually that uh, proof of stake happened, uh, where uh, this gigantic blockchain that was garnering uh, hundreds of millions, hundreds of billions of value uh, and had a $20 billion trust system in its proof of stake uh, network uh, was able to change from proof of work, uh, thereby uh, essentially reducing its carbon footprint 99.95%, uh, becoming deflationary in its economics, and, uh, and, and, and essentially uh, front-running the ability for what's called sharding, which is the ability to essentially scale the network, uh, which is what we're going to be seeing in 2023. Uh, now that proof of stake has happened, uh, we're going to see uh, multiple attempts at improving scalability um, at the base layer and through layer two scaling. Yeah, so I know that you are very close 
to the Ethereum ecosystem. It's really interesting. I never heard anyone say that before, uh, that Ethereum is the largest cryptocurrency by every metric except for market cap. It's an interesting point. Uh, any risks or concerns that you see ahead? Obviously, these are major migrations, major changes to the code base of Ethereum. Uh, do you have any concerns about the smoothness of some of these transfers as we go through uh, all of the other major hops? I think the, the big one just happened. Uh, where we were, we are constantly in a Byzantine environment where the network can obviously be attacked. And I think the largest change was was through proof of stake. Um, the the withdrawal systems uh, I think will be very straightforward. It's actually been uh, built already, and there are already test nets uh, proving the withdrawal systems to work smoothly. Um, and then dank sharding, I think, can be rolled out, uh, I would imagine, Q3, Q4. I think with all software, uh, there can be delays. Uh, and this is kind of building bleeding edge protocol layer development. Uh, this isn't just kind of updating an application. Uh, right. And so I think that probably the biggest uh, issue is delay rather than kind of a uh, risk that it's not gonna quote unquote work because uh, the way that these are tested before they go live, uh, Ethereum's essentially batting a thousand. Uh, if, if you've seen any of the upgrades since it went live in 2020, uh, 2014, so we're, we're coming up on 10 years. They, I think there've been you know seven, eight major upgrades and there hasn't been anything detrimental with any of these upgrades. Uh, every, every one has actually worked very smoothly. So I think, you know, if there is an issue, it's just a slight delay in time. It's nearly time for some viewer questions. But before that, for those of you watching on the Real Vision website, thank you. If you haven't signed up there yet, check it out at realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's the best way to get early access to Real Vision crypto content. We just released Raoul's new interview with Kevin Rose. All you have to do to watch it today is sign up for free on our website. Again, that's realvision.com forward slash crypto. If you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe and hit the notification bell. By the way, if you're watching on YouTube, jump into the comments. Uh, I'm always in those comments uh, while we're doing this. These are the live streaming comments on YouTube. It's fun uh, to get to uh, you know engage with people who are asking questions there. Talking of which, Andrew, this great question from Bandit8899 on YouTube. I think this is a really interesting one and you're the perfect guest to answer it. Everybody is talking about a multi-chain world. Do you believe in a multi-chain world? Uh, if not, can you tell how Ethereum could handle all world assets? So essentially he's asking, uh, are you a multi-chain guy? And if not, if you're just a pure ETH play, uh, how does Ethereum manage to sort of encompass this massive constellation of potential assets? Sure, sure. I, I do believe in a multi-chain world in the same way I believe in a multi-search engine environment. Uh, and, and in that uh, analogy, 85% of searches happen on Google. And there's probably another 50 search engines like Ask Jeeves and Bing and Yahoo uh, that, that fight for the other 15%. And, and the data, uh, frankly, the evidence uh, has pointed us into the direction of uh, transactions occurring on Ethereum, liquidity swarming to Ethereum. And I would just say using that kind of the back of the napkin, kind of this 85-15 rule. Uh, and, uh, and of the other chains, uh, it's important to understand their virtual machines. Without getting too technical, uh, all of the, or many of the other chains 
actually run the Ethereum virtual machine. So Avalanche, as an example, Binance Smart Chain uh, are all EVM chains. And then kind of the layer two ecosystems uh, are all anchoring to Ethereum. So I think that kind of competitor layer ones are actually uh, in competition with Ethereum layer twos, like Arbitrum, uh, Optimism, ZK Sync in the zero knowledge version of, of a rollup and Optimism and Arbitrum being an optimistic version of the rollup. Uh, and, and, and I think the, the main issue is that I, I am not yet uh, a believer in bridges. Uh, we, we've seen lots of hacks that happen where the state's maintained on both sides. And uh, I, I do believe that the state does need to reside and be anchored in one substrate. Uh, and, and what we've seen work well is kind of an optimistic rollup or a zero knowledge rollup anchoring to Ethereum. So basically you have kind of one referee of the data, whereas if you have, let's say, Avalanche to Cosmos, you have kind of two referees that could argue over where that data or where those assets reside. Uh, so I would say uh, the other layer ones have to find their use case and, and where they're going to thrive. But, but I do think that the majority of the action uh, will reside on Ethereum and its layer twos. Yeah. Here's a kind of a cynical question and comment from Gandalf Gray, which, by the way, we always welcome here on uh, Real Vision I in particular. Uh, uh, so he, meaning uh, you, Andrew, brought up Ethereum reducing its power by 99.9%. The other thing it did for Ethereum was reduce its security by 99.9%. I know this is something we hear from, uh, from Bitcoiners quite frequently. Uh, and he says you can't have all three in the trifecta of security, decentralization, and speed. Thoughts, Andrew? Obviously, uh, a question uh, from Gandalf, who's someone who's obviously clearly thought about this a great deal. What, what do you say to people who make this comment about I, reducing security? I, I would actually argue that it has improved security, uh, and and basically the value needed for uh, to to uh, attack a proof of stake network uh, is far greater than the fifty one percent needed to attack a proof of work environment, uh, and and. Uh, we have not seen any rollbacks, any uh, any issues at the protocol layer. So, frankly, uh, until I find evidence where uh, the protocol and its data is attacked successfully, I would argue that uh, it is more decentralized and consuming less carbon and and achieving the same goals. Uh, that uh, it did with uh, with proof of work. Talk a little bit about how those security enhancements, in your view, happen uh, under the proof of stake environment. You mentioned that uh, you believe it actually requires uh, more power, more capital, more resources to attack a proof of stake network. Uh, you know, one of the challenges I think in this space is that there's just less data in terms of number of years that people have been trying in this adversarial system to hack those systems. Why do you believe uh, that they are going to be inherently more secure than proof of work? Well, well, basically, in order to attack the Bitcoin network, you would need over 51% of the adversaries. And uh, with, with the proof of stake network, you would need uh, close to 66%. And uh, you would have to be able to do that for a long period of time. And uh, if you were to uh, attack via proof of stake, the only way to attack via proof of stake is you actually have to 
deposit your assets. So in this example, staked Ether. And if the network were to understand that uh, you were being malicious and essentially verifying improper data, your staked Ether would be slashed. So basically, it, there's, there's this slashing that happens where the only way that you can actually attack it and change the uh, protocol from working is by depositing assets into the system. And that's what the system is built to prevent against. So, so basically, you have to put up more money. Uh, and, and, and that money, unlike proof of work, uh, where if you can just direct hardware um, and then you can shut it off, in proof of stake, you, you, you basically have placed the deposit in order to be one of the validators of the network. Yeah, here's a great question that just came in like a second ago from Bill Tippett. Uh, what slash who has the solution to ETHE versus ETH discount? Obviously, it's something we were talking about earlier in the show. Basically, you see these uh, trading assets trading at a significant discount to net asset value. Uh, is there a solution in your view to this uh, sort of arbitrage opportunity, if we can call it that? It, 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 it's an ETF. Uh, that, that, that's really the only way that I unfortunately see this happening. Uh, and uh, I, I feel bad for the people that, that acquired these assets because uh, this is obviously not how it's uh, intended to operate. And, and frankly, it's been printing money for the uh, grayscale. Uh, it, it, I, I, I joked that, unfortunately, it was the most successful product in blockchain, uh, and it was kind of centralized <laughs> uh, and, and, and uh, I, I would say, value extractive, uh, and now it's upside down. But, but I think the only way that this is going to potentially resolve to, to par is, is by uh, an ETF. So you just so two quick points just to clarify here for people who aren't following this as closely uh, as you are, Andrew. So when you're talking about the uh, this being upside down, historically it had been trading uh, at a premium to net asset value. Now obviously it's underwater relative uh, to net asset value to the tune of almost 50%. Looks like 47% on my screen right now. Uh, and when you say it's an ETF, uh, currently of course it's a closed end fund. When you say it's an ETF, you mean the solution to it is to move to an ETF because the structure. Uh, of an ETF versus a closed end fund allows for essentially a continual rebalance uh, of that so that you can essentially move between the two assets more seamlessly. When you have a closed end fund, you can't create and destroy uh, those shares to keep uh, in, in line with net asset value on a daily basis. Exactly. Okay, uh, some great questions, really active questions today. I appreciate it, guys. Uh, thanks, and keep jumping in with them every day. We love it. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of your other uh, predictions for 2023, because you had some that were outside of the Ethereum ecosystem, particularly around regulation, around the Fed, around chartered banks. Tell us some of those ideas that you had for 2023. I think a great way for crypto to exist in a regulatory compliant way is for banks to be able to offer services. Uh, uh, where they could essentially custody, they could have staking, they could have uh, over-the-counter trading or exchange book trading, uh, and it could operate under a banking licensure. So, so that was one example of, of a way that I think that uh, you could have regulatory compliance while still maintaining kind of the decentralized nature of, of banks still being kind of the access point uh, for uh, these assets. 
Andrew, fantastic conversation, as it always is uh, when you join us on the show. We covered a lot of ground here today, talked about a lot of different subjects. Uh, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers with. There, we should not conflate the centralized intermediaries that uh, potentially uh, committed fraud uh, and were unregulated with uh, the promise of this technology, which is the complete opposite, that is decentralized, smart contract based, and can embed transparency and regulatory compliance. Yeah, you know, for me too, uh, Andrew, this is really very much about decentralization, the promise that holds in the migration path uh, it takes to get there. I think the best comment that I had was one of the guys from Framework Ventures, I think it was Vance, uh, who said on this show uh, that, uh, you know, essentially, if Sam Bankman-Fried had been running a laundromat uh, instead of a crypto exchange, some of these allegations, and they are just allegations at this point, obviously innocent until proven guilty, uh, could have taken place. These are in no way inherent to the crypto ecosystem per se. Uh, these are things that we've seen happen, obviously, in other spaces. And this, this migration path to true decentralization, to smart contracts, uh, to you know, essentially being secured not by trust, uh, not by paper contracts, but by the laws of math and physics. That really is the big story here, uh, Andrew. And no one articulates that narrative better than you do. So thank you so much for joining us again on the show. Really a pleasure having you with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Go Real Vision. Thank you. Uh, for those of you watching on YouTube, if you're not a Real Vision crypto subscriber yet, don't forget, it's free. Uh, head to realvision.com forward slash crypto and subscribe and hit the notification bell here for good measure as well. That way you can always stay up to date on the latest crypto news and analysis. And I should add, jump into the conversation uh, that we're having in the in the, uh, in the comments. Obviously a blast there today. Lots of activity, lots of great questions. Uh, and I think they made the show much better. That's it for today. Will Clemente will join us tomorrow with the latest technical analysis. See you at noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time, 9 a.m. on the West Coast, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great afternoon, everybody.